Welcome to The Lead, the new Lions Magazine podcast. I'm Joshua Martin, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. The Republic of Somaliland is a breakaway region of Somalia, which has enjoyed de facto independence since it declared itself a sovereign state in 1991. In contrast to the rest of the country, it has been praised for its multi-party democracy and relatively robust state institutions, although its efforts seeking formal international recognition have thus far been unsuccessful. Earlier this year, however, Somaliland's relative peace was disrupted by fighting in the city of Lassanod. I'm joined today by James Barnett, the journalist, writer and Fulbright researcher affiliated with the University of Lagos and the Centre for Democracy and Development in Abuja, Nigeria. He has reported from conflict zones in Nigeria, Ukraine and most recently Somalia for his latest article in New Lines, Inside the Newest Conflict in Somalia's Long Civil War, he travelled to the city of Lassanod, where a popular uprising against the Somaliland government erupted into open warfare this February. James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Josh. So I wanted to start with something that one of your sources said to you near the end of the article. He said that you shouldn't be ashamed of being a coward under gunfire because it meant that you were, his words, civilised. And he said, gunshots mean nothing to me. I am an animal. That can't be an easy thing to feel about oneself and certainly not to admit that you're feeling to somebody else. Yeah, it was it was pretty devastating to hear, honestly, and I can't imagine what it was like for him to say it. I'm grateful that, you know, we discussed it and he said, you know, if, if I could kind of mention that in the article, because it, it's it was in some ways a fitting kind of conclusion to this story about, you know, how ordinary Somalis experience trauma. I mean, for the record, this is clear in the story, but I mean, this this is one of the smartest kind of sources, contacts I spoke to in Somalia, a young man with real political kind of acumen and, and kind of insights, someone who really was very kind of honest about the challenges of state building in Somalia, the kind of the, the issues of clan violence. So like a very, you know, he, he was an advocate, he's an activist kind of supporting this SSC rebel movement, but, you know, also a very kind of sharp political analyst in his own right. And we, we'd experienced, yeah, a number of kind of firefights together. And at one point, you know, I think, I think out of frustration with just kind of the status of, you know, the Somali political impasse and such, and, and the, the, the length that the civil war has gone on, he kind of opened up about that, about what it means for, you know, someone his age, he's, you know, kind of late twenties, early thirties to, uh, to have kind of grown up their whole life, you know, in a conflict environment and what that does to, you know, psychologically to people. So that that's one element of this of this story, I suppose. Yeah, it's it's interesting that he asked you specifically to mention that, actually. I take it you kind of got the sense that this was something very important to him, this idea of these ordinary civilians experiencing these things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he mentioned it throughout the, you know, throughout throughout our time together that, you know, the trauma of ordinary Somalis is is something that, you know, needed to get more attention. That's something to to write about. And, you know, sometimes at first I thought maybe he was kind of joking. He kind of said it in a joking manner. But, you know, later it seemed that he was quite serious about it. Yeah, no. I mean, was that something that you heard from anyone else or that kind of attitude? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's I think that you know, Somalia has been in one form of civil war or another for about 30 years. And so the, you know, you hear it in Mogadishu, you hear it in Southern Somalia, you hear it in Puntland, you hear it all over the country, that there's a degree of, you know, that there's kind of, especially those who have, you know, really been been in the, the heat of it for a long time, or those who grew up in the refugee camps, you know, right. outside Somalia, that there's, there's kind of this risk that politics is becoming you know, just this this language of violence because it's what people understand. People are inured to it. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack there, and I didn't have time to kind of or space to unpack everything. There's, you know, it's interesting to contrast. You know, not from this source, but from other sources. Sometimes you'd hear kind of, you know, more like when I was in Mogadishu, you'd hear kind of people complaining about the diaspora. You know, saying, well, you know, they weren't mm-hmm. here during the heat of the fighting. Those of us who are here, we kind of were programmed a different way almost. So it comes up in, in conversation in one form of conversation, one way or another, I think throughout the country, not not only in Lasanod. Yeah, and I think that kind of speaks to what the core question that you were trying to answer with this piece was, which was that, you know, what does it take to build a new society when the task rests on the shoulders of a generation so desensitized to war? And 
that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of what I was hoping to unpack with you a bit today. But before we do, I think we should probably talk a bit to catch the listeners up about how so many Somalis became accustomed to war in the first place. So just broadly and briefly, what led Somalia to become this kind of quintessential example of a failed state? Yeah, I mean, you know, you have to go back to the 1980s. I mean, I'm sure, right, as with as with any historian, you know, you can always say, well, you know, it has complex long roots. Yeah, yeah, you can keep guess, going back hundreds of years. but Right, right. It's the, you know, the Tom Friedman approach of start everything in the biblical era <laughs> when talking about this part of the world. No, I mean, I think that the, you know, it, it really goes back, you know, the, the, the catalyst was this civil war that broke out in the 1980s. It broke out, you know, there were multiple factors behind the civil war, multiple grievances. There was a strong geopolitical dimension. Somalia had kind of been part of this, you know, the geopolitical proxy competition, whatever you want to call it, you know, in the Horn of Africa during the civil war. And so, you know, they'd been originally kind of in the Soviet camp then in the U.S. camp, fought this very disastrous war against Ethiopia, kind of based on these Somalia redentist claims. And so mm-hmm. after that, uh, the failure of that kind of war with Ethiopia, the, the state really started to crumble and you had different rebel groups kind of cropping up along clan lines. And so by 1991, you know, Siad Barre, that was the dictator, was uh, forced into exile. So he, he left and kind of at that point, people say, you know, 91 is, I guess, when, you know, the last semblance of a Somali government for some time disappeared. And so then it was kind of the true failed state at that point. And you had, you know, for for really a decade kind of, or if not more, a period of really fierce civil war between these kind of clan-based militias and these individual warlords and stuff. The alliance has shifted quite a lot. You know, this is the period in which I think Americans probably first heard about Somalia for many of them, because you had this UN intervention that was backed by and supported by the U.S. military to essentially not try to, not, not kind of like the state building efforts of Iraq and Afghanistan, but a more limited objective mm. of essentially securing a beachhead for humanitarian aid in Somalia. But then gradually there was an element of mission creep. The U.S. military became very interested in hunting this one particularly notorious warlord in Mogadishu. And so then that you know resulted in the Black Hawk Down incident, this you know very intense battle in Mogadishu. And then after that, you know, the, the U.S. and kind of U.N. withdrew. And so Somalia was left to its own devices you know, things started to shift a bit in, in some ways, but not in every way in, in the 2000s, where you had, you know, the growth of Al-Shabaab, this jihadist group, kind of with pretty substantial links to Al-Qaeda from early on. And then from 2012 onwards, they publicly pledged, you know, an oath of, you know, a bias. So now they're now, you know, Al-Qaeda's East African affiliate. So the war kind of, be, the, the, the civil war in Somalia was kind of transformed into this element of the global war on terror. And there, there became a very strong regional dimension, particularly with neighboring Ethiopia invading, backed by U.S. forces at the end of 2006. Then by 2011, you had Kenya also intervening in Somalia, you know, then eventually that also this, this kind of African Union peacekeeping force. So right. it's been this, you know, the and, and at the same time, you've had, you know, since since 2006, or maybe it's better to, you know, kind of paint this more as like 2012 after Mogadishu was more or less fully cleared of al-Shabaab, although they still conduct attacks every day, but they no longer hold, you know, the city in a kind of conventional military sense. You've had some, you know, you've had a federal government of Somalia that has has been, you know, it's had a seat in Mogadishu and stuff. So there is some semblance of statehood, but the remit of the of the government is so weak. It's very limited. You know, they're, they have trouble even, obviously, in, in kind of providing security within most yeah. districts of Mogadishu. They're heavily reliant on, you know, the foreign African Union troops. And then what you have is this kind of dynamic where the government in Mogadishu doesn't have much kind of direct power or kind of presence in most of the rest of the country. You have these federal member states. So one of them being Puntland, which is a very, you know, important kind of actor in, in this story. And these federal member states, they're often not on good terms with the government. They accuse the federal government of meddling in their affairs. So they have autonomy. You know, some some of the states are more autonomous than others. But, you know, needless to say, what this kind of produces is a situation in which the, you know, kind of the sources of, of you know, legitimate state authority are very kind of scant in many areas. And, yes. really, you know, even though there's a veneer of kind of statehood or state authority, a lot of it is essentially clan politics and, you know, clan elders or clan leaders that are kind of, 
you know, uh, almost grassroots kind of building up their own institutions, but with the veneer of kind of, of statehood. One of these states that you're talking about is Somaliland, mm-hmm. which on the whole has managed to avoid a lot of the worst of the fighting. I think mm-hmm. that's fair to say so far. And it's kind of new, right, for this fighting to come to Somaliland rather than the south of the country where there's a lot more of it. And so I was just wondering whether you could talk a little bit about how that came about, that this sort of what's usually, I guess, presented in the media, at least in sort of contrast to the rest of the country, as this, this island of stability. Was, it, mm-hmm. was that ever really that true or has something changed? Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> It's an incredibly contentious topic and you don't make any friends trying to kind of, you know, be balanced on this, I think, because people obviously Somalis feel very strongly one way or another, you know, about this question. I think, you know, Somaliland was pretty tumultuous in the 1990s. They were having their own issues. I think it's really been more in the past, you know, in in kind of in the new, in, in the 21st century that the country has made some progress. I think a lot, you know, the kind of from 2002 onwards that, and then really in the past 10 years that they've kind of made more of an international push for kind of recognition and, and, you know, things, things have been kind of going better there. The, the issue, I mean, there are a couple issues, right? So like this fighting between Somaliland and the Dulbahante clan, you know, this, this SSC movement that I was, you know, kind of spent some time with, there had been similar clashes in the early 2010s. So it's, it wasn't like this mm-hmm. was the first instance. And, you know, over the past couple of years, there's been some concerns in Somaliland about democratic backsliding, about, you know, some of the kind of the consensus between the clans breaking down, right? And so some of the Western kind of institutions that the Somaliland built on top of, you know, like with, within their new state, they still kind of had to be built on a consensus between the powerful clans because at the end of the day, you know, the clan is still the fundamental socio-political unit, I would say, not only of Somalia, but of Somaliland. And so it's very, you know, you can only build up these institutions when you have that consensus between those, you know, fundamental socio-political units. And I think that in recent years, we've seen that that started to degrade a bit. So maybe, you know, in some ways, and of course, the Somaliland government would, you know, disagree with this, but, you know, my own assessment is that maybe, you know, things already kind of peaked. And what we've seen in the past couple of years is that the, the, the social fabric and the consensus has been decreasing a bit. And so that's how, you, you know, you could potentially get something like, like the situation in Las Anod. You know, there, though, it's, it's complicated where the, you know, the, the region, you essentially have kind of the core of Somaliland, which is the area around like Hargeisa and some of these other cities, Berbera, that's predominantly dominated by the Isak clan. And there, there was really strong, you know, kind of interest in independence. And, you know, as they point out, they had been an independent state for several days before they voluntarily joined with Somalia in 1960, right after, you know, decolonization. So to them, they don't see it as kind of succeeding. They see it as reclaiming their mandate, you know, kind of that they see that the union doesn't work anymore. So we're, we're going back. So you'd had, you know, real strong support for that over there. But the thing is that in order kind of the the claim to statehood that the the Somaliland government puts out is premised to a large extent on these colonial era borders and the colonial Mm. era borders, you know, essentially the division between the British and then the Italian colony, which later became a UN trusteeship, you know, that cuts through some territory of some clans, particularly the Dulbahante and the Warsangeli clans that were never kind of fully as on board with secessionism or with the the kind Mm. of Somaliland independence. And there's even some, you know, issues between those clans and the Isak of Somaliland that go back well over a century. So there always kind of been this weird kind of disputed land in between what you could say the core of Somaliland and then the federal member state of Puntland, which is highly autonomous, but has never, you know, declared independence from Somalia. So that area, which is, you know, the area where I spent this time and, and did this reporting, has kind of changed hands multiple times since 1991. And mm-hmm. for a time, it was administered by, you know, the the kind of the Dubahante elders were aligned with Puntland. So they said, OK, we're part of Puntland. Some faction of the Dubahante mm-hmm. didn't want to be part of Puntland. They wanted to be their own state. But essentially what happened was that in 2007, infighting, political infighting within Puntland meant that the Somalilanders kind of government had an opportunity to, you know, send troops into Las Anod and some other areas and then enforce what it believed was mm-hmm. its kind of. It's, it's sovereignty, right? Because it believed we're declaring independence as a state that has a border 
you know, this border was agreed to in 1960, even if it was drawn by the British and the Italians, you know, we, we agreed to it upon independence. And so we're just coming to kind of reclaim the territory that's within our border. The problem though, and, you know, then there were, there were years where there was, you know, there was always kind of a, a hard line, you know, certain Dulbahante were very opposed to Somaliland, but there was also a lot of divisions uh, within the Dulbahante, you know, within the people who would make up the SSC. So there was kind of this, you know, there was this, this ambiguous period for a while, I think, where, you know, some of the Dulbahante kind of sided with Puntland and said, well, no, we're part of Somalia, so we're part of Puntland. And so they went on and they had political careers in Puntland. Others sided more with Somaliland. So the community was itself kind of divided. What, you know, what changed and what was the catalyst for, for this uprising was, you know, that I think in the past couple of years, you know, local people in Los Anod started to feel that Somaliland was ruling with a bit of a heavier hand. One of the real catalysts was these kind of the, the killings and disappearances of, you know, some prominent kind of civil society leaders and politicians and stuff in Los Anod and surrounding areas that were either kind of affiliated with Dulbahante nationalism or were part of the political opposition within Somaliland. And so what happened was that, you know, these, these kind of killings started increasing. The locals blamed the Somaliland government. The Somaliland government, of course, you know, denied any involvement, but needless to say, the trust was broken. And so after, after one killing in December of last year, you know, a lot of people, they got fed up. There was this kind of popular uprising among, you know, a large segment of the city, it seems. And then you had, you know, that kind of escalated very quickly into this, into this broader conflict, you know, with the, the kind of Dulbahante militias and other, you know, militias from the region on one side, and then the, the Isak, you know, dominated Somaliland military on the other. It seems like a bit of a dangerous game for Somaliland to be governing with such a heavy hand in the first place, given, like you say, it's a place that's changed hands a lot of times. Did they just overestimate how secure they were in their position there? Yeah, I mean, I think I think to a large extent, that seems to be what, what happened. Like I said, there was real kind of consensus for the Somaliland project in much of the Somaliland territory, but this was an area where, it, you know, the population had never been kind of fully on board, it seems. You know, one of the things to keep in mind is that in, in all sides, right, uh, among all the clans in both Somaliland and Somalia, like, there are always political opportunists. And so this is where it kind of gets mm. tough as an outside observer, because someone will say one thing today, but then you saw that, you know, a year or two ago, they were working with, you know, one government or another. <clears throat> so, but that's, that's just human nature and that's just politics, right? That's not something I think unique to Somalia. But I, I think, you know, from what I can tell, it, it does seem like Somaliland was probably playing a risky bet here because they, you know, they, the population had never been f fully on board with the kind of Somaliland project as they had in, say, you know, more so in Hargeisa. You know, on the other hand, I, for a lot of regimes in, in this part of the world and elsewhere, you know, suppressing dissent is easier than tolerating it, at least yeah. for a time. So it's, it's a way, you know, eventually it probably creates blowback and explodes in, in your face like it has for Somaliland, I think. But, you know, for a time, I mean, Somaliland did occupy the, you know, the city for 15 years. And that's, yeah. that was through a combination, and it usually is a combination of, of co-optation and, and coercion, right? It's in these kind of less than democratic situations, if you will, you know, there's an element of kind of, you know, the authorities co-opt some members, some prominent members of society. So there's just enough buy-in to, you know, to, to keep things going, but then they're also coercing or repressing the elements of society that are pushing for, you know, they're agitating for change one way or another. Um, yeah, but I mean, I think I think what we saw is that the the Somaliland policy, you know, backfired last year and you know started this year. So I would like to come back to Somaliland in a moment, but first of all, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the SSC, this militia that's fighting them. Could you talk about who they are, how they came about? I mean, you talk about them and the Dulbahante mm -hmm. almost like they're synonyms. Is that reasonably accurate to say? <laughs> Yes and no. I mean, this is this is where the kind of the political ambiguity of the project comes in. For the moment, the SSC is much more than a, just a Dulbahante affair. So the the SSC that stands for Solsanaganain, which are the territories that you know the the Dulbahante would like to kind of claim as their own land, right? So this is essentially this is a movement. There had been earlier iterations of it, but you know when this protest started in, in Lasano, they kind of. They, they, this is the movement that kind of emerged and, and, and kind of took control and, you know, has been, has been kind of waging this, this insurgency against the Somaliland government 
you know, with a lot of popular support, it seems in the area to, you know, to break away from, from Somaliland. So the SSC, you know, at they nominally, they're kind of what they've outlined in their political project is that, you know, their main goal right now is to break away these lands from Somaliland and to rejoin or to kind of to be recognized once again as part of the Somali federal government as kind of this, you know, this autonomous region for the next two year period. Then after that two year period, their goal is they want to become a federal member state, similar to what, you know, the status that Puntland has. So this is, you know, this is a really key element to all of this, which is that the SSC, even though those lands were kind of claimed by both Puntland and Somaliland, they don't want to be part of either. They want to create their own state is what they're saying. What's interesting, though, is that, you know, even though the core leadership of the movement is, is Dulbahante and then there's there's a smaller clan kind of closely affiliated with the Dulbahante that's helping them. But they're also getting support now from these two other clans in the broader Harti clan family. So these are the Warsengeli clan and then the Majertain. And the Majertain are the ones who are, you know, they're kind of like the politically dominant clan in Puntland. So as I kind of talk about in the article, right now there's this kind of unity among these three big clans, if you will, to kind of allow the SSC project to, you know, to move ahead and, and, and to try to kind of establish that state where I think things get much, you know, where there's less certainty and probably more disagreement within the SSC is what are the exact contours of this state going to look like? You know, based right. on my interviews with different members, both of kind of the, the elders who constituted the, the leadership council when I was there, as well as activists, members from the diaspora, local residents, you know, some people saw this as our goal is predominantly to create a state for the Dulbahante. You know, that's what we're Ooh. that's what we're agitating for. And we appreciate the support of these other clans. But, you know, those other clans will have their own states and their own space. Right now we're fighting for for our own state. Whereas others kind of had this view that, well, the SSC will be more than just a Dulbahante. You know, it'll be more than just a Dulbahante state. It will also have Worsengeli and some even said Majertain. And when you bring in the Majertain, it gets very weird because, you know, the Majertain already effectively have their state in Puntland. So does that mean that there's going to be, you know, tension between the SSC and, and Puntland over the exact borders and stuff? So that's that's where I think that the, you know, at, at present you have this kind of unity of purpose against Somaliland. But the question is kind of what comes next, assuming these guys are successful and, you know, they've been holding out for a long time. You know, the Somaliland, they're having some troubles over closer to Hargeisa now. So the SSC people that I'm still in touch with in the months since I've, you know, the weeks since I left, they're very optimistic that they're, you know, that the Somaliland forces will eventually withdraw. And as I, you know, told the, the elders, the leaders of this movement when I was there in June, I said, you know, look, I, I don't have a dog in this fight you know, you guys, you guys really might get your autonomy from Somaliland, you know, good for you. The question is, what are you going to do next? You know, you haven't been able to mm. kind of articulate what are the exact contours of this state? What's your relationship going to be with Puntland? What's your relationship going to be like with the federal government? So that's, that's where some of the, the discussion in the essay about the, you know, this isn't unique to the SSC. This isn't even a particular issue of kind of a shortcoming of the movement. It's a broader issue in Somalia about how do you build a state based on these clan identities that are very kind of volatile and, and always shifting and such. Yeah, I mean, let's talk a little bit more about the clans, because you call it in your piece, I think, the fundamental socio-political unit of the nation. Hmm. But so far, we've not been very clear exactly how the sort of clan system works. How does it all sort of work in terms of governance and alliances and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, so... You know, it's somewhat complex insofar as, I mean, for starters, it's a very multi-layered system, right? Where Somalis, like in Mogadishu, people will talk about the 4.5 system, by which they mean the four major clans, you know, so this is how they've kind of allotted seats in the federal government and stuff. You have, you know, a division between the four major clans and then half a division, like half an allotment for all of these smaller clans. But the problem is that a lot of those bigger major clans, like to even call them a clan is maybe a bit misleading because it's it's so large it encompasses so many of these smaller you know these smaller units so when you know when you ask a Somali what clan do you belong to depending on the context they might say oh you know I'm Darod which is the highest level you know that's one of the the 4.5 one of the biggest clans in Somalia mm -hmm. or they could say well I'm Harti which is you know a subdivision of that or they could say well I'm Dulbahante which is a subdivision of the Harti but then there are all these subdivisions of the Dulbahante so it kind of it you know in the political context I think what what this kind of creates is 
you know, in, in Mogadishu politics, a lot of stuff is talked about in terms of, you know, the big clan units, the 4.5 stuff. But once you get to the local level in places like Puntland, places like, you know, Jubaland, where I also did some research uh, before going to Las Anod, then, then you have a lot of these kind of the, the distinctions and the differences between the different constituent clans of those larger clan groups really, you know, really come into play. So that's just kind of on the question of the identity. On the question of, of the leadership, I mean, that's, you know, that's not an area that I'm uh, an expert in. I would, I would caveat. I think that, you know, generally you have kind of, you know, clan elders that are either based on their lineage or based on some kind of consultative, you know, somewhat democratic system are essentially seen as like, and, and treated as being the representatives of that clan. So Somalia for the past, you know, what, since 2012, I guess, they've not been able to hold, you know, proper, like one person, one vote elections because of the insecurity, because Al-Shabaab controls, you know, a sizable chunk of the country and the population. So what they've done is essentially, you know, clan elders from different clans around the country come to Mogadishu and vote on behalf of their clan. And it's certainly, you know, a, a less than ideal system. And you get into, you know, every time around the election season, you get into these debates and sometimes these violent conflicts about, well, who's allowed to represent this clan? Because, of course, the president and his party are going to say, you know, they're going to pick one member of that clan who's, a, who's aligned with them and say, oh, he's your clan elder. But then some other people might say, no, 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 we don't recognize that guy as our clan elder. You know, mm. he's, you know he's just a political stooge. So the whole thing becomes very politicized in a way that it becomes difficult. You know, you can't really talk about clan identity and clan leadership and, and structure as if it's some kind of unchanging, you know, tradition that, you know, the Somalis have always had because it's it's changed with, you know, the political winds so much throughout throughout history. Right, 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 right. And so would it be fair then to say, I guess, that that's part of the problem that Somalia has had, particularly since the 1980s, is that it's failed to synthesize the clan system with the, you know, the nation state system. There's these two systems and it hasn't found a way of mixing them together that functions very well. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, that's insofar as, you know, I think the fundamental problem, right, going down, looking at the the Al-Shabaab conflict, which is more in, in southern Somalia than the north. And that's, you know, I, that, that's what I actually did most of my kind of research on when I was in Somalia and writing a report on that now. You know, I mean, the fundamental issue there is politics, right? Like Al-Shabaab only thrives because the different, you know, kind of political entities, which, as I said, you know, these days are, are essentially drawn along clan lines, you know, but also with, with very strong personalities kind of representing those different groups, if you will, that there's, you know, they can't agree on the division of resources. They can't agree on the division of political power, on representation and, and stuff like that. So in some ways, yes, it is it is a question of kind of, you know, fitting the clan system into the modern nation state system. But I would say, yeah, I mean, th there are also a lot of other elements at play, right? So like I said, there's been this element of kind of the, the presence of foreign military forces in the country, particularly the Ethiopian role has been very controversial historically. There is, you know, a genuine kind of ideological contest going on between, you know, Al-Shabaab's interpretation of Islam and the ones that have traditionally been stronger in, in Somalia. So it's, you know, there it, it's multifactorial, if you will. But mm. fundamentally, I think that Somalia's challenge is not a social one, it's a political one. And I think at this moment, the politics are kind of built around these clan identities. So, so yeah, in, in a sense. Okay, that's interesting, because the reason I bring that up is because I often see Somaliland being hailed as a contrast, right? This big success story in comparison to Somalia's failed state you'll see people contrast the top-down, quote-unquote, approach yeah. of the national government to the south with Somaliland's bottom-up approach. The idea is that it's, you know, successfully combined clan traditions with a state apparatus, kind yeah. of a hybrid system. Having been on the ground and seen it, particularly at this point where there's a conflict erupting right on its border, has this kind of been overemphasized, would you say? I mean, yeah, I like... It certainly has insofar as Somaliland never clearly enjoyed the same degree of consensus across the full breadth of the colonial protectorate as it once had. You know, I'm, I'm in a like position where I, I tried to go to Hargeisa. I wanted to go. And, you know, after spending time with the SSC, I'm effectively PNG'd, which is, you know, that's, that's cool. expected, yeah. right? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised or shocked or even offended. It's, you know, that's life. 
so I can't really speak much to what the situation looks like in Hargeisa, kind of based on, you know, the the SSC, of course, are of this view that, you know, Somaliland is this fake state, that it never had any consensus or whatever. And they point to one of the, you know, just recently in the past, like two months, there's been some serious uh, opposition from one kind of subclan of the Isak that's now turned into essentially a violent conflict. So, you know, they, they'll point to that and say, oh, you know, there's never any consensus anywhere. But I mean, you know, from what I've read about this, from what I've looked at, you know, I think that there, there was more kind of political progress in like, again, the Western part of Somaliland, Hargeisa, Berbera and stuff, where there was kind of that, that consensus between the clans did allow for them to build up some, you know, institutions that, that they haven't enjoyed in, in Southern Somalia. I mean, just, you know, the, the element of one person, one vote, right, that they've had elections like that in Somaliland for some time, and they haven't in Somalia. So I think that there is some truth to that. A lot of analysts also, but, you know, it's, it's never been as complete as I guess what I would say. And particularly, there's always been a very big geographic disparity between, you know, how Somaliland, the Somaliland state building project is perceived in one part of the region as opposed to another. You know, a, a number of people have also, analysts have pointed particularly to kind of, you know, Musa Bihi, the current president. There's been an issue as well mm-hmm. where there's been this kind of a, a de facto extension of his term. And, you know, they give a very technical reason based on the system of how the elections run and parties have to be registered and re-registered. But, you know, certainly a lot of Somalilanders themselves, including, you know, ISAC, members of the opposition and stuff, also feel that, like, you know, the part of this is a recent problem as a result of, you know, one kind of, you know, one political party, essentially, rather than, you know, so there are many Somalilanders, I think, who are critical of the current government, maybe, but don't want to throw mm. out the entire... Somaliland state building project. But as I said, I mean, I think with this issue in Las Anod, it kind of seemed to me like it was going to be, you know, you get access from one side or not the other. I think that's often how it is in these conflicts. And so I, I should be, you know, kind of humble in my own assessment of what's happening in Hargeisa. So when we're talking about sort of Somaliland state building project, a lot of its success there is its ability to, or its perceived ability to maintain peace within the territory it controls. I mean, its anthem instructs its people to, and I quote here, live in eternal peace, live in eternal peace, we greet you with joy, live in eternal peace. I mean, that's pretty clear, right? That that's a big part of the pit, you know, you live in Somaliland and you avoid warfare. Given the outbreak of fighting in Lassanod, those words are probably starting to sound a bit hollow, right? Do you think the Somaliland project can sustain itself if the conflict continues for, you know, two years, five years? Yeah, I mean, here's, I think it's important, maybe I should kind of try to put on my realist cap, if you will. You know, Somaliland's pitch for independence, you know, it's kind of arguments that it's made and, you know, to both US, Europe, uh, you know, the Gulf states, regional actors, it's, it's, it's been very engaged in that kind of diplomatic effort. There are multiple elements to it, right? There's the, the selling point of democracy, there's the selling point of stability. There's also, you know, to certain powers, especially the selling point of just kind of geography, and the benefits, mm. right? Somaliland has a very strategic coastline in that, you know, Red Sea, Bab al-Mandab, Gulf of Aden region. I think that, you know, if we're being realistic, certain external actors are going to be happy to continue working with Somaliland, regardless of kind of its democratic credentials. I think that the, the democratic kind of backsliding and, you know, this conflict hurts Somaliland more in its engagements with the U.S. and the EU. You know, we've mm. seen a bit of that, that like, you know, there has been like a, a kind of de facto and quiet downgrading of ties, be, you know, insofar as some of the embassies in Mogadishu that had previously been, you know, sending people to Hargeisa a lot, kind of stopped doing it as much at the start of the conflict. So I think that this conflict is, is a liability for them, because I think that even if you kind of assume, all right, we put on our realist cap here, this is the Horn of Africa, you know, most, <laughs> like, there's no real democratic state in the region. So Maybe you can kind of, you know, maybe the Somaliland government can get away with, you know, a bit of the democratic backsliding, but that only works if, you know, it can also maintain its stability. Again, just speaking as, you know, kind of real politique here. And so yeah. the, the Los Anod conflict in that sense really is going to be a, you know, a challenge in that regard because they're, you know, and especially it's not just the city itself of Los Anod, it's some of, some of the surrounding terrain, you know, if this mm. is a state that doesn't have full control over, you know, the, the, the mandate that it claims full control over its territory, then, you know, that, that is definitely, I think, 
going to cause some skepticism from international observers and different foreign governments about, okay, you know, how viable is this? I think that the, you know, the real question is this kind of, there's been some clan violence, you know, recently, as I said, just kind of starting a couple months ago, excuse me, starting a couple months ago and escalating a couple weeks ago, much closer to Hargeisa, you know, just, just south kind of in the Isak lands. I don't, you know, I don't really know much about that. That's not an area I've kind of analyzed the local dynamics. I just know kind of in broad terms that the, you know, the kind of militia there is is linked to one opposition figure maybe, and they're kind of saying that this is about Musabihi and, and the election delays. But, you know, if that, if, if there's continued violence in that part of Somaliland combined with what's happening in Las Anod, then that's a, that's a major challenge for Somaliland. You know, the, the Las Anod conflict on itself, I think, you know, especially because Somaliland is putting a lot of security resources into that, you know, soldiers, you know, weapons, stuff like that, that I think that the longer that conflict goes on, it really does kind of drain Somaliland's resources and stuff. But, you know, we'll see. Unfortunately, the Horn of Africa has, you know, seen more than one frozen conflict in its days. So I, I don't think that we should assume that this will be resolved kind of uh, immediately. It could potentially drag on for a while. It, you know, uh, the SSC folks are, are quite optimistic that I talk to. So maybe, you know, maybe the Somaliland side will really crack, but I, I also wouldn't rule out that this will drag on for quite some, some time further. And that was where things stood at the time of recording. But just days after I caught up with James, the situation changed rapidly, and we agreed to meet a second time to talk about what it meant. James, thanks for being here. You know, what's changed since we last spoke? Yeah, thanks, Joshua. So essentially on August 25th, the entire kind of battlefield situation changed really overnight. I mean, in the span of a day. The conflict, as I wrote, you know, in the essay for New Lines, both when I was there in June and in the weeks following the publication of my of the article, the situation was really quite stalemated on the ground, where essentially you had the Somaliland lines encircling roughly three sides of Las Anod, and then the SSC fighters in the town and in other some positions also outside the town, kind of encircling the encircling in Somaliland forces in a way. There were kind of multiple layers of, of overlapping lines, but everything was was pretty stalemated, right? They were just fighting, you know, shooting back and forth. And then on August 25th, in the span of the day, of a day, the SSC overran pretty much all of the Somaliland positions in the territory that they lay claim to. So to put it simply, I mean, this was, I think, you know, just for lack of a better word, it was a military victory. And indeed, the SSC are already kind of uh, claiming victory in this war, right? Because their forces are now in control of the pretty much the entirety of the Dulbahante lands, you know, which is the land that they claim for the creation of, a, of an autonomous SSC state. Uh, the Somaliland forces uh, had to withdraw, you know, they kind of were, were routed, like I said, in, in the span of just one day. You know, the situation now, Somaliland has not kind of, you know, they've not given up their claim to that territory. So we're, st- we're very much in a kind of precarious moment where we're waiting to see what will happen next, because kind of at least rhetorically, politically, these two states are still at war. But the SSC is kind of, you know, they they see this as they've essentially won the war against Somaliland, although they're still, you know, preparing for the possibility of a counterattack. But they, you know, they they've had their celebrations. Their administration is moving ahead with its kind of political plans for, you know, the building up of the the SSC Khatumo state. And yeah, SSC activists are are kind of, you know, declaring August twenty fifth Victory Day. So that's a that was kind of a very surprising development that even when I, I got some calls from SSC contacts, you know, the day of, I, I woke up to the news because I was in the U.S. And, you know, even some of them were surprised that it had it had happened so quickly. So I think that kind of speaks to what a, what a shocking development this was in, in some ways. Yeah, I mean, they even captured a general, right? Yeah, they did. They captured, I mean, the the numbers that I heard, and of course, you know, these should be treated, taken with a grain of salt because they're coming from, you know, the one, one belligerent uh, of the conflict, but, you know, that they captured the commander of the Somaliland forces around uh, Las Anod, as well as about, I think, upwards of 300 other soldiers, a number, you know, several tanks, a lot of technicals, a bunch of, you know, other military vehicles. And and it was, you know, it was a, a bloody kind of series of, of you know, or, or at least that day, you know, the fighting on August 25th, which kind of continued into the next day, 
you know, the ICRC, the, the Red Cross has been up there and they've now, I think they've, they've collected several dozen bodies for burial. They won't say, you know, which, which side they belong to, but the kind of, you know, what, what everyone is, is, is kind of assessing or assuming is that these are mostly Somaliland soldiers who were killed. So it was, you know, within the context of this conflict, it was a rather, you know, it was a relatively large scale and yeah, successful, you know, military, military offensive. Yeah, so the SSC are declaring this a victory, but at least publicly, Somaliland has declared its intention to come back and fight again another day. I think the Somaliland Minister of Defence released a statement that said that the National Army was in the midst of a serious reorganisation and preparation mm -hmm. to confront the enemy. Yeah. I mean, they're going to say that regardless, but do you think that it seems likely that this will continue? Yeah, I mean, the truth is I... <laughs> I'm kind of wary of making predictions here. I think, you know, it's it's a very it's a very kind of odd situation insofar as I think that the SSC ended up being much more successful in its military campaign than than most observers, including many Somalis, you know, who I spoke with in Mogadishu and stuff, uh, than many people expected. I think that you know a lot of uh, a lot of observers, you know, myself on the ground when I was there, I didn't see you know, anything that indicated that the SSC was on the verge of victory. It seemed like a very stalemated conflict. So I think, you know, the, the two things that, that really changed in kind of the period between when I visited and, and, you know, wrote my article and the end of August, you know, one is, is that the SSC itself became better organized. And so right. you could see this because what happened on August 25th was that they, you know, they launched a coordinated offensive and they hadn't been doing that in the past. It's one of the things I, I discuss in some detail in the article, which is that, right, the SSC was not an army. It, it's, it was a, an organization or a coalition of different militias from different subclans that had kind of banded together. And there was no centralized command and control. And so it meant that there was a lot of shooting back and forth across the front line, but there was no real coordinated mm. movement from the SSC forces. And, you know, from what I've heard from contacts, essentially in the in the in the course of, of several weeks in August, when the SSC was kind of organizing a new political body to oversee the administration, that also entailed kind of overseeing a more unified military command. And so they just kind of, you know, they got their act together, so to speak. They, they acquired some new weapons and technicals as well. They mentioned, you know, through the sources that I discussed in my, my article. So part of it, you know, all this to say, part of it is that the SSC at least for the time being, seems better organized and a more competent fighting force than they were for the first six months of the conflict. But the other thing that really, I think, changed and, and has had a serious impact on not just the Somaliland military's ability, ability to fight in Las Anod, but also kind of the overall stability of, 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 of the country, of Somaliland, is that you have this, this clan uprising or kind of, you know, at least disgruntlement and discontent from certain clans within the Isak within central Somaliland, and in particular, the Garhajis clan. And so what we saw in kind of early August was that the members of the elements of the Garhajis clan started fighting with the Somaliland security forces in parts of central Somalia. And then what, you know, the reports that I heard were that kind of in the days leading up to the SSC offensive, but also on the day of the SSC offensive, the Somaliland army's kind of morale just really broke. And that Garhaji's units in particular, this one subclan of the Isak, that a number of them defected. And that notably mm. from what I've heard, and the picture is still a bit muddled, so you know, take that with these these caveats, but from what I heard, the Garhajis did not join the SSC. They just stopped fighting with Somali because they're not actually aligned with the Dulbahante. They don't, you know, they they're also enemies there. You know, maybe there is something behind the scenes that I'm not aware of, but the reports I heard were actually that. Garhaji's fighters even ended up fighting with SSC fighters, but they were also fighting with Somaliland fighters. So all this to say that the, the Somaliland army, I think, you know, underwent a really serious crisis of morale and had some serious defections that are kind of rooted not so much in the SSC Las Anod issue, but more in the kind of the other, the, the broader kind of political uncertainty and increasing political friction in the country. So, you know, all of that to say, to kind of bring it back to your, your question, I mean, I think it would be very difficult for Somaliland to militarily retake the SSC lands, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the territory that the SSC forces now hold. A lot can change over the coming weeks and months 
and years, right? And I think that mm. this is where it's important to look at the history of Las Anod, which the city had been occupied by Dulbahante militias and militias aligned with the Puntland state up until 2007. And in 2007, you had discord between the different clans in Puntland, including the Dulbahante. And so that provided an opportunity for Somaliland to kind of forces to, to come in and occupy it. And mm. so I think I would not be surprised if you know, the the Somaliland strategy would be, okay, wait and hope that some of these, you know, the 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 internal friction within the SSC or between the SSC and Puntland, that, you know, something like that will lead to kind of a breakdown of the, you know, what we now see as a relatively organized SSC army that, you know, over time due to the kind of fractious politics of the region that I discussed in the article, that maybe those, you know, the clans, those clans will be in conflict with each other and that's when Somaliland can, you know, can come in and, and reassert itself. Because I, I think that, you know, as we see it now, I don't see how the Somaliland military, and I'm not an expert in their military. I mean, maybe they have some secret assets that I'm not aware of. Maybe they have a deeper pool of manpower that I'm not aware of. But it seems, you know, it seems unlikely if, if they were just kind of barely holding on to Las Anod for six months to their positions outside of town, which, you know, the positions were strong because they were in good terrain, right? They had mountains overlooking the town. Mm. They, could, they could shell the SSC positions in the city from, from those areas. Now that they've lost that and they've been pushed into their own, uh, you know, their own territories back in kind of, or, you know, the, the Korisak territories in Somaliland, I think it would be hard for, for Somaliland to kind of come in and, and reoccupy those, those lands. But I think as we've seen with how abrupt, you know, the SSC's victory was and in many ways unexpected, you know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't rule out anything at this moment, but that's just kind of my impression. Yeah, and it seems like the dominoes are kind of starting to fall, right? You've got the SSC taking over Lazanod. You've also got fighting with clans elsewhere in Somaliland. I mean, it, it, it doesn't look great from the point of view of the Somaliland government right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I would think not. And I think that one, you know, the the so-called international community, right? The US, the EU, the UN have all called for kind of, you know, an immediate stop in what they consider the escalation in fighting, right? Which was the SSC, you know, offensive. I mean, they tend to be very kind of ambig ambiguous, you know, diplomatically ambiguous in their statements. So they didn't refer to an SSC offensive, but essentially, you know, the cause of their concern, I think in part is that, you know, there was some fear that maybe the SSC forces would move in, you know, further into Somaliland and really try to like topple the government or something. And that, you know, they, they, all of a sudden you had this question of kind of the long-term stability of Somaliland might be at stake. You know, I think the, what we've seen in the days since the August 25th uh, offensive is, is that, you know, the SSC fighters are, you know, the SSC leadership was not interested in kind of crossing into the Korisak territory. I think they realize, you know, for one, I don't think that, you know, they don't consider, those places, their land in the same way that they consider, you know, the sole region to be their land, but also they're not stupid and they know that they have no popular support, you know, that they're very much seen yeah. as the enemy in those areas. So I don't think that, you know, there, I don't think there's a risk of an immediate, you know, the SSC marches on Hargeisa, but you now have this situation, you know, just again, in the Eastern part of Somaliland, you, you know, the conflict is very much not resolved. Right. And you have almost a bit of a security dilemma, if you will, where the SSC does not trust Somaliland not to try to come back and, and reclaim the area by force. So the SSC is reinforcing positions. They're positions in what they consider the Dulbahante lands. They say, you know, we're not moving into Somaliland. And they're even making this clear in their statements. They're not saying we want regime change in Somaliland or anything. Uh, they're saying we're not going to enter Somaliland, but they're still reinforcing their military positions in their own territory. And because right. Somaliland sees that territory as part of their sovereign nation, you know, they, you know, they certainly have not admitted defeat. They've not said, you know, oh, yeah, sure, SSC can go and have its own state. And not only that, but they see that this armed movement that just had this big, you know, successful offensive is is still mobilizing its forces. And so maybe they're starting to get worried as well in Hargeisa that the SSC is maybe conspiring with other elements or whatever, uh, and that, you know, maybe a bigger, you know, that the, the conflict might reignite. So I think, you know, this is, you know, a, a, a time where I think that both sides need to kind of be talking clearly with each other to avoid a, you know, to avoid a, a kind of a reignition of the conflict on a broader level. Because as you say, then, from the perspective of Somaliland, it's not just this issue in the East. 
which, you know, for the time being has been, you know, very much seems to be trending in the direction of, of the SSC's favor. But it's also that the, you know, the military defeat is a big blow kind of politically into the, you know, the prestige and the credibility of the Somaliland government. But there's also, like you say, there's this other clan uprising happening. You know, there's there's a lot of uncertainty within Somaliland right now. I think that the, you know, the Somaliland political elite have been quite, you know, relatively unified, actually. You've even had some, you know, a number of opposition figures who are kind of opposed to Musa Bihe, the president, kind of rally around the flag after the mm. SST victory. So, you know, it, it's not it's not like the whole kind of house of cards is collapsing or whatever. You know, there still does seem to be. And again, this is my read. I'm, I'm not in Somaliland, so I'm not kind of the I don't have the best insights there. Yeah. But it's definitely I mean, it, it raises serious questions about, yeah, you know, the, the, the stability of that country. One concern, again, I would have is that if, you know, with kind of a, a, a weakened, you know, or, or the, the president's credibility and his administration's credibility having taken a hit, that one of the kind of the last legs that they'll have to stand on is this war. And there's going to be this rally around the flag effect. And and so that, you know, maybe the war really isn't over because maybe the best way for the current administration in Somaliland to survive and, you know, the best way that many Somalilanders feel that they need to do to save their nation or whatever is to reclaim the SSC territories. Right. Then you could have a big problem. So that's why, while I think that at the moment, the SSC certainly, you know, they've secured the territory they want. I'd be very cautious about predicting where things go next. I think it's a, a pretty volatile uh, situation, both you know for Somaliland, but also for for the kind of nascent SSC you know state. James Barnett, thank you very much. This has been the Lead, a podcast by New Lines Magazine. You can find James Barnett on Twitter at jh underscore Barnett and read his article Inside the Newest Conflict in Somalia's Long Civil War on our website newlinesmag.com. This week's episode was produced and hosted by me, Joshua Martin. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app. Thank you for, for joining us. <laughs>